that we're simply calling Emotionally Healthy. Uh, this was new ground for us, and it continues to be new ground for us, for me anyway. And if you weren't here last week, if you didn't have a chance to, uh, to listen online or on the podcast, I really encourage you to go back and listen to this over the next couple of days. We spent a lot of time laying some groundwork there last Sunday, um, because, uh, and it really lays the groundwork for the next few weeks of, of my teaching here on Sunday. So if you're a podcast listener, um, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on our website. And as a, as a subscriber, you know that that'll automatically show up in your feed and you don't have to remember to go looking for it. It'll remind you that it's there. Um, you'll never miss a thing that way. Uh, if you prefer to listen online and uh, maybe download the audio there, you can do that at our website at faithcommunityfellowship.com. People have asked me when we're going to start videoing our, like posting our services on video, maybe doing a live stream or whatever, or having video you can go back to watch. Um, I'll just tell that's a ways down the road for us because uh, we don't want to do that until we can do it with some measure of quality. And if you've noticed, we have um, like no natural light in this room. So there are some extra challenges for us to produce good video. So we know that to do that with quality is going to require an investment of money and training and technology and time and volunteers and all that. So um, overall, there has to be a measurable return on our investment on that. So if we put a lot of money into video and then four people watch it, probably not a good return on the investment. So we're not quite there yet. So for now, uh, we feel like our best return on investment is the audio content that we provide online. And we're able to see analytics on that. And there are weeks where we have three or 400 people who are engaging with our podcast or the online content. So that, that's pretty cool. Um, and also, we may have a different answer on that question in a year's time. So hang with us. So whenever Dad and I uh, teach in a series here, um, if you're relatively new to faith community, let me just kind of... Uh, if you haven't experienced this phenomenon before, let me explain how it works, okay? In the nearly 22 years of sharing the teaching here on Sundays, Dad and I have done maybe two or three teaching series together where we've created content together in a somewhat cohesive series that we've taken turns teaching. But most of the time, we teach our series independent of each other. Um, and I know it's a little unusual, and I know a lot of churches that have multiple teaching pastors, they all teach on the same topic, but um, we, I don't have an explanation for why we do it the way we do it. It's just, I know sometimes it can be confusing um, because there have been times when we've each been in a teaching series, and you might be here one week, and it's part three of my series, and you come the next week, and it's part two of Pastor Bob's series. And we both realize, like we acknowledge we could make it easier on you, but we don't typically try to make things easier on you because we know you can handle it. Okay, you're smart people. You're, you, you're exceptionally gifted that way. You can handle this. So that's why we do it the way we do. Anyway, all in favor. Okay, so last week I introduced a series um, that I'm going to take some time over the next few weeks to, to get into whenever I have the microphone and it's my time at the podium. And um, it's actually a little unusual for me to have back-to-back weeks or for either of us to have back-to-back weeks, but it's also a five-Sunday month, and we like to just mess with people. So uh, if you came in expecting Bob, I'm sorry. Um, he will return to the podium soon. I won't tell you exactly when, so you just got to be here every week because you never know. So, so last Sunday, we laid some groundwork for this series that's really beco- about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we said that one of the reasons this is important and one of the reasons we believe we should be talking about this and learning about this is because Jesus was emotionally healthy. And Jesus was an emotional being. Right? Right. Jesus was an emotional being 
How do I know that? Because he was a human being. And that's not to discount that he was also God. He was fully God. He was the embodiment of God himself. But even God the Father is an emotional being. And we are made in his image as human beings. We are, whether you acknowledge it or not, deeply emotional creatures. Because to be human is to feel. And Jesus, as a human being, experienced the full bandwidth of human emotion. And as human beings, we experience all sorts of emotion. Even as healthy human beings, we experience all sorts of emotion and feelings. Some are positive, some are negative, some are healthy, some are not. Some emotions we enjoy, others we don't enjoy at all. So then part of this process of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. So we said last week that it is impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. <clears throat> and that made some of us uncomfortable. We'd like to compartmentalize and separate all these little areas of our lives. We looked at a passage in Matthew 26 where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, before his trial, before his crucifixion. And one of the things that really stands out to me when you look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden was his complete surrender to the will of the Father. And we said that surrender is the place where your emotions start to get healthy. Surrender is the place of trust. It's a place of obedience. It's a place of abandonment. It's a place of vulnerability. It's a place of have your way, God, whatever you want. That's the beginning of emotional maturity and emotional health. When you come to the place where you release and surrender and trust and obey. So we wrapped up in the introduction last week asking the question, what if our emotions, positive and negative, what if all of our emotions are places to meet with God? That was our takeaway, that's what we sat with last week as we were uh, wrapping up. What if our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us? And if we avoid the place of emotion, if we continue to run away, we will never get the chance to meet with God in that place. We never, we never get the chance to experience transformation and renewal and healing and on the other end, purpose and joy and peace. So my prayer for all of us in this series, for all of us as individuals, as a married couple, as families, as households, for us as a church, is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as we follow Jesus. So even though this is new ground for some of us in our church experience anyway, even if this is a, a little intimidating and seems a little invasive and maybe makes you a little uncomfortable, uh, we want part of our church culture here at Faith Community to be this desire to plunge deeply into everything that God has for us, including emotional health. So one of the reasons I feel strongly about this topic is because it is all throughout the scripture. <laughs> right? This is not outside of scripture. And I believe that when we're done this series and you want to look back at all the scripture that we're going to touch down on, you're going to see that how, wow. I mean, you might even ask, how did I miss this? In my reading of scripture, how did I miss this? 
So we're gonna, we looked at a ton of scripture last week, and we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Luke today, uh, Luke chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, if you use a print Bible, uh, and you're sitting somewhere where you have enough light to read it, um, or you have a headlamp so that you can see your Bible, or if you have a Bible app on your device or whatever it is, or if you aren't prepared for any of that, we're going to put it on the screen for you so nobody gets left out. If you're new to the Bible, first of all, uh, we're just happy you're here. And we hope you'll kind of hang in there and engage with us and, and uh, long enough to kind of figure out where you might sit with this. Wherever you are in your journey with Jesus, we're, we're glad to have you as a part of this conversation. We're just all, look around the room, we're all just followers and learners. Nobody here is an expert in this deal. Um, no, nobody's really confusing us for Jesus. We aren't quite there yet. So we're just following and learning along with you. Um, a little bit about the, the writer of the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke is one of the four Gospels. It, which is a way of saying a biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. Okay? It's just a churchy way of saying this is a story of Jesus. Uh, Luke was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was actually a physician, if you can imagine what that might have looked like in the first century. Um, and he was a historian. It was, I think it was kind of like a historian as a hobby. It's what it looks like. And his story of Jesus is incredibly in-depth. He did a ton of research. He didn't even witness all these things on his own. He talked to eyewitnesses and interviewed eyewitnesses. So the first three chapters of the book of Luke are, of Luke are all about Jesus' family of origin, his birth, uh, some of his childhood. And how many of you know that a discussion about emotional health is incomplete if we don't talk about family of origin? How many of you know that to be true? So hang with us because we are going to get there in this series and talk about your family of origin. And I hope, I hope that you maybe are one of those cases where there are more than one generation of your family that attends this church, and I hope you're sitting right next to your parents on that Sunday, because that's going to be totally unawkward at all, and that's a new word too, but it's going to, you're just going to enjoy that so much when we're talking about your parents and how they messed you up, so um, that's going to be a good time, so I'm looking forward to that one especially. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we are going to talk about it, I'm just not going to tell you when, because I think that might be a record small crowd. So in, the, uh, yeah, so in the Gospel of Luke, we, uh, we get the story of Jesus' family of origin. And we get a little bit of it. And uh, in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 23, um, we read this, because it jumps way ahead. Verse 23 of Luke 3. It says, Now Jesus uh, himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. <coughs> he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, because there's a little question about his genealogy. So Luke takes the time to, over the next 16 verses, which we're not going to read, to provide some genealogy, which wraps up with, it's very thorough, it wraps up with the son of Adam, the son of God. Um, you think you're into genealogy. If you can trace your genealogy back to Adam, man, I would love to see that. That'd be amazing. That would be quite an impressive tree. Um, keep reading into uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, so this is just to give us a frame of reference as to where Jesus was living at the time. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. What an odd place to start, first of all. He was, in, in this line, it's confusing to a lot of people, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil. The word wilderness in Greek, because you all know I'm a Greek scholar, I'm not. I like to read people who've done the work, and then I just get to skim off of their efforts. So the word wilderness in the Greek is the word eremos. Can we say that together? Eremos. Nice. Good. Now we've got a whole room of Greek scholars. It's usually translated wilderness or uh, desert. Um, so 
I don't know if any of you live on Mount Eremos Island, but now you do, now you know. We think uh, hot and sandy but when we think wilderness and we think desert, uh, but the point is really that it was empty, that it was desolate, that there was no one around. So what he's saying here is that Jesus was alone in the desert. The big question here is why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the desert, to the wilderness, to the solitary place? First of all, let's acknowledge that Jesus' clash with Satan was inevitable. And I know it gets a little, like, almost like science fiction-y here. Um, but as part of his calling from the Father, as part of his mission on earth, he, he had to succeed where Adam had failed. This was foretold all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And since Adam and Eve, every human being has failed. Even all the major players and all the ancient Jewish roots of our Christian faith, men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and all the way down to you and me, we've all fallen short. And Jesus came to make this right, to repair this brokenness, this interaction with Satan was inevitable. Then on top of that, most of us think, in fact, I've heard it taught that the place, uh, that the desert was a place of weakness for Jesus. That Jesus is out there, he's all alone, he hasn't eaten for 40 days, there's no one else around. So most of us think of this time as a time of weakness. And here comes Satan along in Jesus' moment of weakness. I don't know how many of you have heard that taught as well. But let me just throw out a, a twist on this. What if, what if the wilderness wasn't a place of weakness for Jesus? What if it was actually a source of strength? Dallas Willard uh, wrote this about Jesus' wilderness experience. He says, most people are shocked at the suggestion that the wilderness, the place of solitude and deprivation, was actually the place of strength and strengthening for Jesus, and that the Spirit led him there, as he would, leads us there from time to time, to ensure that Christ is in the best possible condition for his testing. And in that desert solitude, Jesus fasted for more than a month. Then, and not before, Satan was allowed to approach him with this glittering proposal of bread and notoriety and power. And only then, Willard says, only then was Jesus at the height of his strength. The desert was actually his fortress, his place of power. And throughout his life, he sought the solitary place. I tend to agree with Dallas Willard. I tend to agree with Dallas Willard on a lot of things because I'm just smart enough to agree with people like Dallas Willard. Um, throughout Jesus' life, he, he sought this out on a regular basis. We read about Jesus getting away. Even when he had some of the greatest demands on his time, listen, he would pull away, go to a solitary place with the Father. For instance, look at the end of this chapter in Luke chapter 4. Uh, most of chapter 4 is one brutally long day in the ministry of Jesus. In the morning, he's teaching, and he's preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. In the afternoon, he's at a guy's, uh, at Simon's house healing people. And then at night, at sunset, people are bringing all their sick friends because word is spread and bringing all their family, sick family members, all kinds of sickness and ailments, and he's healing the sick, and he's casting out demons and late into the night. And we finally read this in chapter 4, verse 42. It says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. In the NIV, it says solitary place. Uh, in the Greek, anybody want to guess? Eremos, right, you can say that. Can you say, what's it say in the Greek? Eremos, yeah, because we're Greek scholars, remember? Um, he went out to the wilderness. 
In Mark's telling of the story, he says, in the solitary place, in the wilderness, he prayed. Keep reading, verse 42. Uh, the people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So this is interesting. After a long, intense day of teaching and healing and caring for people, Jesus, who as far as we can tell, leans towards extrovert, he gets up early in the morning, he goes out to a solitary place, all alone in the quiet, and he spends this time in prayer with God. So when he comes out of the solitary place, there are at least four things, if you want to write these down or make a note on the Bible app, uh, I think it might be worth it. He comes out with four, uh, four things that are true of him in this experience. So first is clarity. He comes out of this experience with clarity about what he's supposed to do. How many times we would just long for a little bit of clarity, right? Verse 42 says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns because that's why I was sent. So he has some clarity. It's like, I know this is great what's happening here in Capernaum, but I wasn't just sent to Capernaum. I need to go to the other towns of Galilee. I have, and then I'm going to go head to the south in Judea, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I have this crystal clear picture of what I've been sent to do. Then secondly... He comes out with the ability to say no to good things. Ooh. As soon as he comes back to town, the people are like, like hey, Jesus, why don't you just stay here? Because like, we've got a good thing going on here. Everybody's asking for you. You're building a huge following right here. People are coming from miles around to hear you speak and to be healed by you. This is a great opportunity for you right here in Capernaum. We're, we're, we're right on this strategic straight, uh, trade route. There's a ton of traffic through here. People from all over come through this town. I mean, look where we're located. And if you looked at a map, they're up in the northeast is Syria. And in the northwest is is. Uh, Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey and into the Roman Empire and down south is Egypt. I mean, this is a strategic spot, Jesus. So if you want to do something great, you can do it in Capernaum and you're right on the axis. It'll spread and word will get all over the place. And this is a big deal because for a rabbi just starting out, um, this is a great opportunity to grow his influence. And Jesus says, no, I'm okay. Thank you. I appreciate the thought, but no. He was well aware of the axiom that good is the enemy of best. He was well aware that you can only say yes to a short list of things. He was well aware of the danger of busyness and overcommitment. <clears throat> I'll never forget um, hearing uh, John Ortberg speak for the first time in the summer of 2002. And he told a story about a conversation he had with one of his mentors, who I've already quoted today, Dallas Willard. When he was in that stage of life where he, des uh, he describes as, maybe you can identify with this, you're there or you've been there or it's coming, he describes it as van driving, soccer league, piano lesson, school orientation, night years. And he asked Dallas Willard, he said, what do I need to do to, to be spiritually healthy? And after a long pause, Dallas Willard said this. You may have read this if you read anything by Dallas Willard. He said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You probably should write that down. And you, and you can credit me if you want to, that'd be cool. Dallas Willard said that. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And for most of us, this is an odd concept, right? We're always in a rush. And it's not because we're disorganized. I mean, I'm a pretty organized person. I'm just trying to squeeze in as much as possible. And perhaps, I don't know if you're like this, but perhaps I overestimate how much I think I can accomplish in an hour or in a day or in a week. <laughs> 
you know? If you're at the stage of life where your kids are young, how many times a day do you find yourself saying, come on, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, let's go, come on, hurry up, let's go, hurry up, come on. And that was just trying to get the church somewhat on time this morning, right? So you, you know what I'm talking about. We never see Jesus in a rush. And one of the reasons is because of his ability to say no to good things. So Jesus comes out of the solitary place with clarity about what he's supposed to do and with the ability to say no to good things. And then number three, he comes out with an immersion in God's presence. Over and over in the gospel accounts, we read that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And then number, so I think he lived a 24-7 saturation in the Holy Spirit. And finally, he comes out, number four, with empowering for kingdom work. Luke says that he kept on preaching in the synagogues of, all over Judea. So he goes into the wilderness, into his solitary place. I'm guessing, after reading Luke 4, uh, tired, maybe stressed, definitely worn out physically, probably worn out spiritually, probably not much to give emotionally because he was... Mo- he was fully engaged with people, and he comes out with clarity about what he's supposed to do, with the ability to say no to, the, to good things, with an immersion in God's presence, and with power from God to do the work of the kingdom. Now, a lot of us, myself included, most of the time, we are the exact opposite of that. Am I right? Instead of clarity about what I'm supposed to do, we often have confusion about what we're supposed to do. We're all over the place. Boils down to who am I again? What's my calling in life? I forget. Tell me. Instead of the ability to say no, we just keep saying yes to way too much. To way too much good stuff that we, we say, oh yeah, sure, no problem, you got it. I'll be there, you can count on me. I'll be there, no problem. We say yes not only to good stuff, but let's be honest, we say yes to dumb stuff. We just say yes all the time. And instead of an immersion in God's presence, sometimes we feel a disconnection from God like he's a far away, not close at all. Sometimes we try to make this a habit every seventh day to come uh, to church because we feel distant from God and we feel like this kind of reconnects us. Because we do a lot of life feeling like he's far away. He's more of an idea than a living person that we are with all day. And instead of empowering for kingdom work, we feel stressed out. We feel on edge, and we often feel like we're running on empty and maybe even a little grouchy and maybe a little unmotivated and worn down and maybe even depressed, let's be honest. And maybe, just maybe, all of this is true of us because we don't spend the right kind of time in the solitary place. Blaise Pascal said that all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. We've lost the ability to do that. And I don't mean like just you and your phone, right? For a couple thousand years, followers of Jesus all over the world have been talking about and trying to practice what in the church we call spiritual disciplines. How many of you ever heard that term, spiritual disciplines? Okay. If you've been around church for a little while, you've heard this language. A spiritual discipline is a practice or a habit, something that you do on a regular basis, and you do it on purpose, in order to live every minute of every day in awareness of God's presence, um, in order to live out Jesus' teachings, the life that he modeled. Um, 
and all the masters of the spiritual disciplines from Richard Foster and Dallas Willard all in our lifetime all the way back to the church fathers of the second, third, and fourth uh, centuries, all of them speak about a total of about 20 spiritual disciplines, which is a little overwhelming. Uh, but when you put all their works together, there are five that they all have in common uh, that always come to the surface. And they are silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, and meditation. Silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, and meditation. Let's just try to find these real quick. Silence is a world with no noise. It means no cell phone, no music, no people. Quiet. Just... Yeah. I stop talking for four seconds and we get uncomfortable. Solitude is you're all alone by definition. You're not with your church friends. You're not with your spouse. You're not with your small group people. It's just you and God. Prayer is simply dialogue with God. That's what prayer is. You talk to God and you listen to God. It's really not much more complicated than that. Fasting, sometimes you go without food. Maybe take the time you'd normally be eating and you spend that time with God. And meditation, where you just you think deeply on the scriptures, on nature, on God's world, on God's voice, on your interior life to just be open to God. A lot of times if you, uh, if you were to read a book about spiritual disciplines and we, we think about silence and solitude and prayer and fasting and meditation, it becomes a little overwhelming because um, you're like, ah, oh, man, I'm such a loser on this. I need to just like, I just, I'm never going to be able to do this on my own. I need to like join a monastery or something. I need to climb a mountain by myself. I need to go on a cabbage fast. I mean, what is a monastery? Anyway, I don't even know. I'm a terrible person, right? So it's like, it's just overwhelming. Listen. <clears throat> There's a time and place for these kinds of disciplines. I mean, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days without food. But in the story at the end of chapter 4, he goes to the solitary place for a little while in the morning. Different time, different scenario. Not, it's not this crazy, extreme, you know, unrelatable kind of thing. 40 days without food, whatever. Well, I, don't, I can't go 40 minutes. This discipline is something that all of us can do. However you're wired, however your personality, whatever your schedule is, whatever your stage of life, whether you work early or you work late, whatever, the point is that this is something, however your life is and however you are, you, you make this life with God part of your life. The first thing most of us need to do is get away from the noise. When was the last time you turned off your phone? And I don't mean this morning because you couldn't get an app to load, so you had to reboot. Okay? If you're still accessible, you aren't truly alone. So turn it off. You, can I just say something? That, you aren't that important. <laughs> right? Man, we think, if, if I turn my phone off, what's going to... Like, Someone's going to need me. 
As long as someone knows where you are, they can find you. Turn off your phone. Maybe you need a set time and place to spend time with God. That may be too restrictive for some of you. It depends on how you're wired, right? Um, and I understand that. You can, you, or maybe you, you can journal, and you're really into that. I've never been a journaler. I take notes if I'm reading something that stands out to me, and it grabs me, but I don't really journal my thoughts or process that way or my prayers or anything. But some of you are journalers, and I think that's awesome. And I know in my home, uh, other members of my family have been journaling for a long time. And I'm not talking about keeping a diary that's different. I'm talking about expressing and writing what God is saying to you, what God is teaching you, what you're saying to God, the questions you're asking God, those kinds of things. I know the pushback. I get it. The pushback from stepping away for a little while every day, the, the pushback from unplugging, the pushback from going to a solitary place on a regular basis, I know, I know what it is. You're busy. I, I know. Everyone you know is busy. You're just so busy. No one is busier than us. I mean, we're very important, busy people. And it's all, everything, every text I get is so important. There's no honor in being busy. When you respond, hey, how are you doing? Maybe someone said this to you today in response to, hey, how are you? How's it going? And they say, busy, man, I'm busy. First of all, it's not an answer to the question. I didn't ask about your schedule. I asked about how you're doing. It's busy. There's no honor in being busy. Look at this uh, next chapter in Luke, chapter 5, verse 15. It says, Yet the news about him, Jesus, spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. So word starts to spread that there's this rabbi, and his message is unlike anything they've ever heard. In fact, he might be more than rabbi. He might be a prophet. He might, some are saying he might even be the Messiah, the promised one, the one we've waited for for generations. So Jesus has become a household name, and why not? I mean, he's healing the sick and he's healing the lame, and he's healing the blind, and he's casting out demons, and we don't even know what that looks like, but it sounds pretty sensational. But verse 16 says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Guess what that phrase lonely places is in the Greek? Guess. Yeah, eremos. That's right. On a regular basis, he withdrew from everything, went to his wilderness, okay? Went to his solitary place. For Jesus, this is just, this is just a regular part of his rhythm. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus was, on some level, Jesus was busy. And I know that you're busy. And I'm pretty sure that if you're busier than Jesus, odds are you're not emotionally healthy. Would you agree with that? <laughs> but still, Jesus made this practice of solitude a way of life. It was part of the rhythm of his life. And as you read the Gospels, you see that the busier Jesus got, the more demands on his time, the more demands from people, the more emotionally he was giving out, the more spiritually he was giving out, the more famous he became, the greater the expectations, the more in demand, the more he got away in silence and solitude and prayer. But for us, often it's the exact opposite, right? So, you know, we're doing really well, man. We're just rolling, you know, life is just happening. And then, like, the holidays show up and, like, Dude, who knew that Christmas was on December 25th this year? I did not just call, that just snuck up on me. Didn't know it was coming. 
then like, oh, now the traffic's bad. The tourists are here again. Who knew they were coming? And the school year ends, and I, I didn't realize I got to get childcare. And you blink, and the school year's starting again. And oh no, the kids have no clothes. And the you know kids, have, oh now the kids have this activity, and they got this activity, and they got this activity. And who knew all these kids' activities were on Sundays? Don't act surprised. You knew that when you signed them up. There are rehearsals, and there's practices, and there's fundraisers, and there's games, and there's road trips. And all of a sudden, the first thing to go is what for Jesus was the very axis of everything, the time alone with God. I'm not even talking about coming to church on Sunday. That's a different conversation. But we abandon and set aside the practice that is the lifeblood of our relationship with God. Solitude and silence and prayer. It's no wonder that we live so much of our lives emotionally unhealthy. It's no wonder if we feel out of sync with the God that we sing about when we do get around coming to church. Could it be that one of the reasons we feel distant from God is that we don't spend nearly enough time and the right kind of time in the solitary place? <coughs> no matter how you're wired, no matter what your personality type, this is something that God created you to need and created something for you to thrive in. This isn't just for introverts, because the introverts are in the room are like, oh yeah, time alone with God, sign me up. Where do I sign up for that? Get, get, all of you, get out of here. And we're just gonna, I'm gonna, I gotta leave right now. I need some solitude. Yes, I'm in on this. <laughs> You're like, all you obnoxious people, people, get out of my space. <laughs> you know, I won't be available for a while. And the extroverts are like, ugh, really? Can I just get together with some friends and go to like a different church service every night of the week? I can find a church service somewhere in this town every night of the week so we can just like crank up the worship tunes and be together with our brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's what I want to do. Let's do that. Listen, this is a practice we all need, however you're wired. No matter where you are on the spectrum of introvert, extrovert, we all need this interplay between solitude and community because we talk all the time in here about you need community. But listen, solitude without community is isolation. That's emotionally unhealthy. And community without solitude goes by all kinds of names. Anxiety, depression, frustration, confusion, codependency, all sorts of unhealthy things. So there's a danger here wherever your personality is. But just like we call all of you into community and we talk about this all the time here, extroverts and introverts, we all need community. Some of us need it more than others. Listen, if you're not in some sort of intentional community, then you are missing out on the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. End of story. We believe that wholeheartedly. But in the same way, the same way that we're continually calling you to community, we are also calling you extroverts and introverts. We are calling you to solitude, to silence, to prayer, no matter how God wired you, no matter your personality. I think this is something we all need. I mean, of course, it's something we all need, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer. But I think it's also something we want. It's something our soul craves. Um, it'd be fairly easy to, to wrap this up right here and like, oh, cool. So Jesus, like all the time, he's in the solitary place. This is his pattern we see in his life. Here's the nuts and bolts of how you do the solitary thing. You know, one, two, three, boom, here's the formula. You need it, you do it. Here's how you do it. Um, you don't think you need it, but actually you do. Here we go. But we're not quite done because this series, as you know, is about emotional health. It's not going to be formula-driven. I'm not going to give you many one, two, three-step processes. 
The basic premise of the series we said last week is that Jesus was emotionally healthy, so part of being like Jesus is being and becoming emotionally healthy. And it's only when we're emotionally healthy as individuals that we can begin to be emotionally healthy as a church. So what do I mean by an emotionally healthy church? Uh, I think in an emotionally healthy church, people can take a deep, hard look inside their hearts and ask what is going on that Jesus needs to change in me. And we need to understand when it comes to interacting with one another in the church that a person's life is like an iceberg. Ever, ever seen an iceberg? Or maybe seen a picture of one? Just for those of you who haven't, it would look something like that. Um, have you ever seen an iceberg? The lives of the people all around you, the people that you do life with, the people in your household, the people you're sitting near in church, everybody in this room, um, our lives are like an iceberg. This is what we see. The vast majority of what's going on, show us, Corey, is below the surface. And we need to invite God to bring to our awareness and to transform those beneath-the-surface layers that hinder us from becoming more like Jesus. I think Jesus cares but what's beneath the surface. Even though you and I tend to focus on that little bit that we can see. Listen, you can engage in some spiritual discipline every day. Oh, you can be super regimented about it if you want to, if that's the way you're wired, if that's what works for you, that's perfectly set your alarm, you know, wake up before the sunrise, 365 days of the year, maybe you do that anyway, but you're just sick, but however... I operate on the other end of the clock. You can read your Bible, pray, meditate, fast, do your thing with God for hours every day if you want to. And listen, and you can still never go beneath the surface. It's true for all of us. We can be oblivious to what's down there. Living in denial, scared to deal with it, running away from whatever is churning down deep in our soul underneath layer after layer after layer. But once again, Jesus is the template for how we do this. So let's wrap up with this passage in Matthew 26 that this is the chapter that we started with last week. So I just want to go back to these verses and look at a different part of it. So verse 36 of Matthew 26 says, when Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, whose names were James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And I find this really interesting. Most of us think when we, you know, get in tune with God's presence, then we're happy. We feel good. We have good feelings, warm fuzzies. But here's Jesus pulling away to spend time with his father. And in that process, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, and he said to them, my soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death this crushing sorrow. Stay here and keep watch with me. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So a couple things right off here as we wrap this up about Jesus' uh, interaction with the father. First of all, he's aware of his emotions. He says to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. So not only was Jesus down, he was aware of it. And he understood what he was feeling. And then he knows why. He knows why he's feeling what he's feeling. He says, if it's possible, may this cup be uh, taken from me. And the cup was a metaphor for his impending death on the cross. He's dreading it. And he knows why his heart is sorry. He knows why. He knows why he's feeling what he's feeling. It's because he's hours or days away from torture and execution and taking on the sin of the world. And he's dreading this. So for Jesus... 
these times of getting away, these times of solitude and silence and prayer, wasn't just a time to, you know, get through his Bible reading plan and, and pray a formula and take a picture to post on Instagram. For Jesus, it was a time to look beneath the surface, to get in touch with what he was feeling, to ask the why questions, and to bring it all to his Father. Jesus is the template. So what's this mean for us to look beneath the surface? Well, first is awareness. All that means is you learn to think about what you're feeling, to think about the dominant emotion of the moment or of the day, just a healthy, mature self-awareness. And honestly, it's more than just an awareness of what you're feeling. It includes, listen, an awareness of what you're doing an awareness of how your emotion is causing you to behave. <clears throat> so I, I thought maybe I'd have to repeat that one. It's more than just an awareness of what you're feeling. It's, it includes an awareness of what you're doing, an awareness of how your emotion is causing you to behave. Are you procrastinating? Are you self-medicating? Are you avoiding? Are you lashing out? Are you being especially passive-aggressive? Are you escaping? Then secondly is asking the why questions. Man, I'm really stressed out. That, I know that to be true. I'm really stressed out. Why? I've really been putting that off. I know I've got to do it. I keep putting it off. Well, why? I've been drinking a lot more lately, or I'm eating alone a lot more lately, or I'm eating a lot more lately. I wonder why. I've really been snide and cutting in my interactions with him or with her. I wonder why. Why do I care so much about what other people think or specifically what those particular people think of me? Why do I feel so judgmental when I see certain people put things on social media? Why am I always comparing myself? Most of the time we never get to this asking why because we're too busy. Oh, I've circled back to that. We don't take the time necessary to get alone, to be silent, and we won't unplug. That's part of the reason for some of us. For others, the real reason we don't get around to asking the questions is because we're scared to. We're scared to look beneath the surface. Because we know, we just know we aren't going to like what we find there. Because we've worked so hard to curate a certain image that we portray to the world around us and we're afraid of what people will think if they see what's deep down there, right? Which is why so many of us, including church-going followers of Jesus, it's why so many of us don't do the hard work of introspection. We don't do the dive beneath the surface until the emotional pain is so intense that it's screaming at us. And so we've left a bunch of hurt people in our wake and we have to do something to change. C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Meaning pain, including emotional pain, is one of the many ways that God gets our attention. If you're emotionally hurting, pretty good chance what God wants to speak to you in that. Lewis said pain insists upon being attended to. Have you noticed? Stub your toe and see what happens, where all your attention goes. Pain insists on being attended to. Ever had a cavity in a tooth? It's like your whole world revolves around that tooth. Pain insists upon being attended to. 
He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. It's a very famous quote. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's interesting. We all want to change our emotions, right? You know, from sad to happy, <laughs> from stressed out to at peace, from frustrated to calm and confident. But we don't want to sit in our emotions. We don't want to listen to what our emotions have to say about our life. Uh, we don't want to learn from our emotions, uh, and then we might have to change how we live, which is why so often we pray, you know, God, take these feelings away. Ever pray that? You can admit it. We've all prayed that. By the way, just you probably figured this out, God, God hardly ever answers that prayer. Sometimes for the brand new Christian who needs a little jump start, he answers the craziest prayers, and it's cool to watch. But, you know, God, I'm so freaking bitter at my dad. I'm so freaking angry at my ex. God, I'm so hurt. Take all this away. Chances are it's still there. It's buried, but it's still there. Listen. Whatever it is in your life that is hiding under the surface, and you're scared to bring it to God, you're scared to bring it to your community, maybe you're scared to even admit it to yourself, you're scared to even think about it, to go there, whatever is under the surface, whatever is causing emotional pain, whatever is causing emotional unhealth or emotional immaturity, whatever it is, whatever in your life is hiding under the surface, it's an opportunity for intimacy with your Heavenly Father. For you to bear your soul to the one who created you, who pursued you, who invites you into relationship, to come to realize his love for you, to come to experience safety in the arms of your heavenly father for the first time or maybe all over again. So, I acknowledged last week that I was going to have a really hard time wrapping up each day and giving you a takeaway. So to wrap up today, um, we're clearly not in the Eremos, all right? We're not in a solitary place. Just look around. Okay, which is not a solitary place. <clears throat> but I want to provide for you the best we can do in this environment for the next few minutes. So let's just stay right here. Listen, I'm just going to, can I just ask you something? If, if you could wait a couple more minutes to get up and go wherever you need to go, uh, let, let's just try to be here and in this moment. And let's show the utmost respect for what God wants to do in this place and in the lives of the people around you or maybe even in you, it's possible, in the next couple minutes. I'd like for you, if you can, in your own mind, make this a, a moment in the Eremos. So draw a circle around yourself. Let's just let God speak to us. Right in this place. We're going to spend a few minutes in the quiet. And I'm going to do something because I know how weird and awkward this gets. I'm going to break one rule. I'm going to play a little music. Um, so we're going to sit in quiet, a little bit of music playing. I want you to feel free to just listen to God. If you have something to say to him, say it to him. If you're like, got nothing, just listen. Perhaps he wants to minister some healing, some encouragement, a reminder of what he has for you. Maybe he's got peace for you and it's just a matter of, hey, let's talk about this. Let's, let's address this. Let's dig a little deeper. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to play music for two or three minutes.